0: All right, well, let's get going this morning. It's, uh, it's December 1st. How about that? Amen. Our message this morning is called Rope Burns. And uh, I hope it's something that blesses you. Turn with me to, uh, to Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 19, rather. Say there when you're there. Rope burns. Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, we see a right view of God's law. THE HEAVENS DECLARE THE GLORY OF GOD, THE SKIES PROCLAIM THE WORK OF HIS HANDS, DAY AFTER DAY THEY POUR FORTH SPEECH, NIGHT AFTER NIGHT THEY DISPLAY KNOWLEDGE, THERE IS NO SPEECH OR LANGUAGE WHERE THEIR VOICE IS NOT HEARD, THEIR VOICE GOES OUT INTO ALL THE EARTH, THEIR WORDS TO THE END OF THE WORLD, SO MUCH FOR THE DESERT ISLAND THEORY, HUH? WHAT IF YOU'RE ON A DESERT ISLAND AND YOU NEVER HEARD THE WORD OF GOD, IF YOU'VE SEEN A SUNRISE, You've seen God's work in a language that all men understand. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from its pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, saying, reviving the soul." Come on now, you want your soul revived. Come on now, do you want to be revived? Larissa, you want to be revived? The Word of God has the power to revive a soul. I don't know about you, but my soul doesn't always cooperate. Sometimes I want to wake up and get up, and it wants to lay there and sleep. And my soul and my flesh will gang up on my spirit, and they'll try to make me depressed. I'm going to cast off that old melancholy spirit in the name of Jesus, huh? Amen. We can send mully grub straight to hell where it belongs. This morning, I am going to have my spirit revived, my soul revived. You going to do it with me? Come on now, say revive me, Jesus. revive me, Jesus. Oh, we're going to have revival now. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. If you feel like you're maybe not that smart. If the IQ test is not something you look forward to, put your nose in this book and it will wake a simple man wise. Oh, every good job I ever had, God gave me. I had some bad ones, he gave me too. I thought they were bad because they hurt for a while, but they produced in me a harvest of righteousness. I'll never forget sitting in front of an employer. I was only 23 years of age and he said, where did you learn the things that you know? I said, sir, I just quote the Bible to you and don't tell you it's the Bible and you think I'm smart because the Bible will make wise a simple man. He was a car salesman and didn't believe that that could be the secret to success. I want to assure you that every good thing in your life, everything worth having will come to you by way of living in the word of God and everything that you need is found in the word and everything that will really make your heart rejoice and be revived and full of life is found in the word. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. So come on heart, you are about to get some joy. Look, you can't change your circumstances, but you can change your heart by the Word of God in the name of Jesus. You can decide to put a smile on your face. You can decide to give glory to God in the midst of your darkest hour. You can be convinced the whole world is against you, but the Scripture says, if God is for you, who can be against you? The living God is inside of me, and for that reason alone, I rejoice, and it's enough, friends. His word is enough for me. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Come on, let's light it up. Let your eyes reflect the glory of God. What are your eyes cast upon? Come on, man, God gave you a neck. Sometimes you need to use it. Not everything out there that God made is for you to look at. <laughs> It's not all there for you to look at, and sometimes it's been airbrushed and lied about so much that what you're looking at is not what God made anyway. But put your face in his book, and he will tell you what to think about everyone. He will rightly divide for you the creation. He'll show you the difference between what is common and what is holy. He will show you the right way to live. I wish Homes and Gardens magazine was all that the cover made it out to be. I WISH FOR ALL OF YOU TO HAVE BEAUTIFUL LIVES CHARACTERIZED BY WHITE PICKET FENCE AND TWO-STORY Acadian HOMES, BUT THE TRUTH IS A HOME IS NOT MADE BY THE PLANTS IN THE YARD AND A PRETTY LIFE IS NOT MADE BY THE COLOR OF THE PAINT ON THE FENCE. YOU GET HIS WORD INSIDE YOUR HEART AND IT WILL GIVE YOU JOY. HIS WORD WILL MAKE YOU SMARTER. HIS WORD WILL BRING YOU LIFE. HIS WORD WILL GIVE LIGHT to everything that you look at, you will see the glory of God in the creation. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned in keeping them THERE IS GREAT REWARD. DO YOU WANT A LITTLE REWARD OR A GREAT REWARD? reward. COME ON, HOW GREAT DO YOU WANT IT? BECAUSE IT'S A BIG BOOK. WE HIDE IT IN OUR HEART AND IT TEACHES US NOT TO SIN AGAINST HIM. WE HIDE IT IN OUR HEART AND it, IT TEACHES US HOW TO ASCEND THE HOLY HILL. UNDERSTAND SOMETHING, THE WORD OF GOD IN YOUR LIFE AND IN YOUR HEART UNLOCKS THE HIGHEST HEAVENS TO THE LOWEST MAN. I DON'T KNOW HOW LOW YOU ARE IN HERE THIS MORNING, Maybe your feet are hanging off the side of a nickel. You could skydive off of a dime. I don't know how you walked in here this morning, but I know that the Word of God has the power to send you out different than you came in. You know, the holidays, everybody puts on happy music, and the retailers get busy to sell you all their stuff. They don't do it with a frown. Even Walmart has big yellow smiley faces. You ever been in Walmart on a Black Friday? Yep. It's not all smiley faces. They'll kill you over a TV set. <laughs> for the some, the holidays are not bright smileys. I know that. It's difficult. Maybe you had a loved one die near the holidays. Maybe for you, this marks a time of year where you feel like you don't measure up. I want to tell you something, though. This ball of dirt is hurtling around the sun just like every other day and my father is holding it in place and he will hold you in place as well. Just because Hallmark wants to sell you a greeting card doesn't make this day special. Every day that that sun rises in the sky and testifies to my father's greatness, that makes the day special. The word of God will revive your soul. You may have a broken heart in here this morning. I hope you got together with your family and it was a good event. I got together with you and it was a great event. I went and fished some of my family out of the same bars that I've been finding them in for years. I had some of the same conversations that I've been having for 20 years with them. I'm still where I'm at and they're still where they're at, but praise God I'm not moving because of them. The word of God has become an anchor for my soul. It goes behind the curtains. It goes into the place where the presence of God is and drags me with it, and I have anchored myself there because I have found something worth having. In the name of Jesus, I'm not going to insult the lover of my soul by being depressed on a greeting card holiday. Thanksgiving. You can read Leviticus 23, you will not find thanksgiving in the feasts of the Lord. You can read the latter chapters of the book of Numbers and you will not find thanksgiving as a festival of the Lord. Thanksgiving is a part of the people of God's life every day. The fact that we get to eat a turkey or two just makes it that much better. Amen? Amen? And if you've learned to fry them, you're elevated to a whole new style of life. It's living. Come on now you all love the Lord? Yes. Did you just come to church to sleep or do you want something? <laughs> See, because I, I got something. And when you got something, you know that you got something. You, yeah. I can walk down the street a little taller, a little happier. Because I got something from the heavens. And when it belongs to you, man, it's yours. Nobody's going to take what I have, but I'm going to freely give it. TO WHOEVER WANTS TO RECEIVE IT. AMEN. DO YOU WANT SOMETHING FROM THE LORD THIS MORNING? THE PROMISES OF THE BIBLE ARE AN AMAZING THING. THEY'RE TRUSTWORTHY. IT'S WORTH CONSIDERING THAT THE BIBLE WAS WRITTEN ABOUT 1500 YEARS, OVER THE SPAN OF 1500 YEARS. THAT'S A LONG TIME. THERE'S MORE THAN 40 DIFFERENT AUTHORS. THEY CAME FROM EVERY WALK OF LIFE. WE HAD KINGS AND PEASANTS, FISHERMEN AND POETS statesmen and scholars. Moses was a political leader. you don't like politicians, you need to watch out. Every once in a while, God will raise one up for his purpose. He was trained in Egyptian universities. Peter Peter was a fisherman. Amos was a herdsman. Joshua, oh man, Joshua was a general. Luke, a doctor. Daniel, a prime minister. Solomon, a king. Matthew, a tax collector. Paul, a Jewish rabbi and a lawyer. They wrote the word over 15 centuries. And there's a scarlet thread that runs through the whole thing. It's a scarlet thread that runs through my life and runs through many of your lives. We can see that men reading the word in different languages on different continents, written by men over 1,500 years, has the same transforming power in our lives. Larry and I hadn't swam in the same circles till recently. But you know what? This morning when he came forward and he had a word and it was out of the word of God, I felt something that was real. There's a connection there. Natalie and I have never composed a song together. Where you at, Natalie? Her and her husband do that kind of stuff all the time and it's beautiful. Did y'all like that last song we sang this morning? She wrote it. She wrote it and I didn't know she wrote it. Because you tricky people keep your gifting a secret because you're shy. And I'm trying to draw you out in the name of Jesus. But I had a word in my heart this morning about a new song. So we left the house this morning before 5 o'clock. We got here and began to pray. We got here and began to pray that God's word would have an impact on your life because we love you. And we say things that are hard to you sometimes because we actually care what happens to you. And while I was here praying, I said, hey, guys, I want to share a psalm with you. I believe this is going to shape our word today. And the little girl started smiling all kind of brightly. But she wasn't going to say nothing till her husband made her. Praise God for good husbands. She had written a song. And the song and the word, they go together. See, We're reading the same book, friends, and we're attached to the same God and the same spirits flowing through us. I don't have to be in Louisiana with my friends for Thanksgiving. If they're attached to the king of kings, then I know what makes their heart beat. Oh, if you don't love him like I love him yet, you just wait. Your day might be coming. Might even be today. The Bible's been read by more people and published in more languages than any book in history i got to tell you, the little girl that wrote Harry Potter has done well for herself, but not half as well as our God has done with his Bible. Amen. You take all the John Grisham novels that were ever made and you multiply them by a thousand and we've not begun to touch the number of Bibles that are distributed around the world every year. Back in the mid-90s, somebody counted 71,500,000 Bibles and books of the Bible were distributed around the world that year. That's 8,162 copies an hour. Almost 200,000 copies every day and night. The word of God is surrounding the globe. And that many copies of the book in not one chapter has ever been proven factually false. Ever. It's the most attacked and most attested to book in the history of the world. It was written on material that perishes, yet it has more manuscript evidence than any 10 pieces of classical literature combined. I've been looking into Homer's work here recently, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that lately later. But 5,300 copies of the New Testament from the New Testament error still exists today. If you begin to put together all the pieces of manuscripts, we have more than 24,000. The Word of God has been preserved remarkably. The oldest known literature, Western literature, was written by Homer as the Iliad. In comparison, is written somewhere in the 8th century B.C., About 600 copies of it exist, and none of them date any older than about the 3rd century, most of them much later than that. The Bible is unique among works of literature in the world. It's not just unique because of manuscript evidence or archeological evidence. It's unique because look at the people's lives and here it's touched. Baj is from South Africa. Eric is from South Louisiana. Those two places are worlds apart, but the Word of God touched us in the same way. Some of you are from Angleton, Texas. You can't even get there from here. You got to start somewhere else. Some of you from by yourself, Louisiana. And the Word of God has rooted us out and joined us together. Come on, isn't it good to love Him with your friends? How many of you would even be friends if it wasn't for the Word of God? How many of us would not be sitting in the same room if it wasn't for the Word of God? What has the Word of God done for you? It plugs you in to the worldwide family of God. Jesus Christ is the star of the Word of God. Oh, how can there not be an amen for that? Jesus Christ is the star of the Word of God. You may not know Him like I know Him, but i got to tell you about Him. In Genesis, he's the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the atoning sacrifice. In Numbers, he's the rock that Moses struck. He's the faithful prophet of Deuteronomy 18. Christ is the captain of the Lord's host in the book of Joshua. Oh, my goodness. Are you for us or are you for our enemies? Neither. But I've come as the captain of the host. The word of God stands immutable alone. There is nothing like it. It's not for you or against you. It simply is true. And you get a chance to stand with the truth. By the time you get to Judges, Jesus is Samson's jawbone. He's the kinsman redeemer of Ruth. Christ is the anticipated, anointed one of 1 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, they call him the son of David. David. In 1 Kings, he's the one who maintains justice. In 2 Kings, he's the chariot of fire that transports Elijah into the heavenly realms. In 1 Chronicles, he's the ark that enters the tent. In 2 Chronicles, he's the glory of God that filled the temple. In Ezra, Christ is the restorer of the temple. And in Nehemiah, he's the restorer of God's nation. You tell me, do you know him like I know him? Do you love him like I love him? Do you read his word? Is it it reading you? See, when you study the word of God, you find out more about your life. You find out what needs to be restored, what needs to be repaired, what can be rebuilt. You find hope. You can live in blindness, but I'm going to live by the light of God's word. In Esther, he's the preserver of the nation. In Job, he's the living redeemer. In Psalm 150 and verse 6, he's the very praise of Israel. In Proverbs, he's the wisdom of God calling aloud in the streets. Ecclesiastes, he's the great teacher. In songs of Solomon, he's the fairest of 10,000. Oh, that's the lover of my soul, the fairest of 10,000. My lover is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. Is there any that are like Jesus? Who have you met that is like him? Who touches your life the way that he does? In Isaiah 53, he's the suffering servant. In Jeremiah 31, he's the maker of the new covenant. Oh, is he good? By the time you get to Lamentations, you find he's a man of sorrows. In Ezekiel, he's the breath that entered dry bones. Do you want the Lord's breath in your life? Oh, come on, say, breathe on me, Lord. I need your life. Oh, he'll give it to you. I can hear the rattling now. In the book of Daniel, he's the coming Messiah. In Hosea, he's the lover of the unfaithful. In Joel, he's the hope of Israel. In Amos. He's the repairer of broken places. In Obadiah, he's the deliverer. In Jonah, he's the resurrected one. In Micah, he's the ruler of Israel. In Nahum, the avenger. And in Habakkuk, the holy God. Zephaniah calls him the king of Israel. Haggai calls him the desired of the nations. Zechariah simply says he's the righteous branch. And Malachi says he's the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. You find me a book, and I will show you Jesus. You find a book about Jesus. You find in the Word the life of God. Do you want his life? It's never left a man unchanged. You can read it, and it will change everything about your heart, everything about your life. It'll take a violent young teenager and make him a man who is in love with the Lord and his people. By the time you get to the Newer Testament, we have Jesus, the King of the Jews in Matthew, the servant of the Lord in Mark, the Son of Man in Luke, the Son of God in John 1.1. Acts 1.10 places Christ as the ascended Lord, and the book of Romans shows him as the believer's righteousness. 1 Corinthians, he's our sanctification. 2 Corinthians, our sufficiency, and in Galatians, our liberty. Oh, is it good to be free in him today? We're going to talk about rope burns. You remember Christ is our liberator, not our jailer. In Ephesians, he's the head of the exalted church. In Philemon, I'm sorry, Philippians, he's every Christian's joy. In Colossians, he's the fullness of the deity. He's not part God. He's not some God. He's the fullness of the deity. In bodily form. In Thessalonians, he's the believer's comfort. In 2 Thessalonians, he's our glory. And in 1 Timothy, he's the Christian's preserver. In 2 Timothy, he's the Christian's rewarder. In Titus, he's our blessed hope. In Philemon, he's our substitute that takes us out of slavery. In Hebrews, he's our high priest. In James, the giver of wisdom. In 1 Peter, he's our rock. I CAN SMELL WHAT HE'S COOKING THIS MORNING. (laughs) SALVATION OF OUR SOULS. IN SECOND PETER IS OUR PRECIOUS PROMISE. IN FIRST JOHN, HE'S CHRIST, OUR LIFE. IN SECOND JOHN, THE TRUTH. IN THIRD JOHN, THE WAY. JUDE PORTRAYS JESUS AS OUR ONLY ADVOCATE. AND REVELATION SHOWS HIM AS THE KING OF KINGS AND LORD OF LORDS. OH, DO YOU KNOW HIM? What is your relationship with him like? Are you passionate about him? Are you passionate about living for him? Do you have trouble containing yourself when you're talking about him? You ask a young man about the woman he loves and his eyes begin to twinkle and his feet lighten in their shoes. Are you passionate about him? Is he a part of your life or is he all of your life? Do you know him like I know him because he's a good God? I spoke to you earlier about Greek literature. Paul read it, Paul quoted it. You have to chew up the meat and spit out the bones. But you need to know that history is his story. History is not something that happened apart from the Bible and the Bible set outside of history. The telling of history is his story told in humanity. How many of you have heard of Troy? The ancient Greek city, Troy. How about Athens? How about Thebes? I was in Israel and I saw the movie Troy while I was there. We wanted to see something in Hebrew. And the movie was in Hebrew. Then it occurred to me that my wife was watching the movie Troy on the other side of the earth. And we were apart for weeks. And I became concerned. Troy, Athens, and Thebes. They were all founded around the time Moses was born. We have a tendency to read the Bible as apart from history. When Moses was thrown into the Nile into a basket, Troy, Athens, and Thebes were beginning to exist on the planet. Talk about ancient accounts. When Moses was writing the first five books that we call the Torah... The Greek myths were supposed to be taking place. You hear ancient Greek mythology and titans clashing with gods. Moses was delivering us the truth from heaven at the same time that the ancient lies that we call myths were being formed. The famous Greek poet Homer That I spoke to you about earlier. He lived during the time of Elijah. Elijah was calling fire from heaven while Homer was writing the oldest works in Western civilization. The events that Homer wrote about, he wrote about things that took place in the 12th century BC, although he himself lived in the 8th century. The things that he wrote about were occurring during the time period of Jesse, King David's father. He wrote stories of great kings who went on great journeys. And the Bible tells us the truth about a great king who ruled a great nation. The story of King David, they thought was fable. And they found archaeological evidence that proves his house existed. Of course, we knew it because Moses wrote it. No one ever questioned whether Troy, Athens, or Thebes existed. And they treat stories like the Odyssey and the Iliad as if they're canonical while they mock the Scripture as an old book changed many times. The only thing that's changed many times are the lives that have been touched by the Bible. This morning I want to draw an analogy. One from Homer's work, The Odyssey. Odyssey in the English language has come to mean any long journey. But that's because the Western world was shaped by the ideals that Homer wrote about. While Israel was shaped by the ideals that Moses and the prophets wrote about. How many of you know who Odysseus is? Oh. This poem, The Odyssey, it centers around Odysseus. The Romans called him Ulysses, and his journey home after the fall of Troy is the story that Homer wrote of. It takes Odysseus 10 years to reach Ithaca, and after a 10 year Trojan War, 20 years away from home and all, in his absence, it's assumed that he died, and his wife Penelope and his son Telemachus must deal with a group of unruly suitors. You ever had house guests? Never stay a little longer than you would like. Men have been writing about this as long as there's been civilization. (laughs) They were eating Penelope and Telemachus out of house and home, literally. They had to figure out how to deal with these men. And because our hero Odysseus had been gone so long, the story centers around Will Penelope marry one of the suitors who is hanging out in her house, eating her husband's food. Is that pulled at anybody's heart? A husband who longs to get home to his wife, a wife that longs for her husband to come home, and meanwhile, Jody's sniffing at the back door. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm in Texas now. Sancho is (laughs) sniffing at the back door. We used to go to work, and while we were at work in the chemical plant, the older men would pick one of the younger men who was newly married, and they'd do two things. They'd tell him, man, you're not looking well. He'd hear that the first time, and no, no, I'm fine. By the tenth time somebody had told him you're not looking well, he starts thinking, maybe I'm not doing that good. I should call in sick, you know, maybe drag up and go home that didn't work the cruel older men start saying you know your wife's not working today playing on those feelings of jealousy is shocking the number of times it worked men went home in the middle of the day for no reason people have been writing about unfaithfulness they've been writing about jealousies and struggles since men could write And the Bible does not shy away from such topics either. The Bible is the story of the fall of man, God's most treasured of the creation. The restoration of man. The fall and the restoration of man and with him the earth. It's a story about a husband who's been away a long time and a wife who is fending off suitors. And the question remains the same Will the Son of Man find faith on the earth when he returns? So Odysseus has a different battle than the Bible. Odysseus fights with Cyclopses. Got one named uh, Polyphemus, an ugly giant Cyclops. Odysseus is armed, though, he's not just armed with a sword. He's armed with his intellect. Odysseus actually in Greek means troubler. One who receives trouble and one who gives trouble. It's kind of like the Hebrew name Jacob in some ways. So the Cyclops begins eating Odysseus's men. So they get him drunk. And while he's drunk, they put out his one eye. Like my neighbor, Matthew. And a neighbor could only see out of one eye, and everything he saw in that one eye was bad. Wasn't anything good in this world. No matter how nice the girls were to him, nothing was good. The funny part of the interaction with Odysseus and the Cyclops is the Cyclops ask Odysseus' name, and he won't tell him. Instead, he says, my name is Nobody. Nobody. First name no, last name body. So when the cyclops is yelling to his brothers that he's hurt and that his eyes out, they said, "Who hurt you?" He said, "Nobody hurt me. Nobody hurt me." Odysseus was clever, and the Greeks who wrote his story were clever. He moved on from there to battle with a witch, Circe. She changed some of his men into animals. Apparently, it's never been hard to envision men as pigs. It's been happening since the 8th century B.C. He uses his wit and his charm to change the men from pigs back into men. At one point, he even has to go to Hades. He goes into the abode of the dead where a dead prophet tells him, you sure are clever, but you're not very wise. This is what began to get my attention clever but not very wise we live in a generation that is clever beyond measure we find new ways to do things we find new ways of inventing evil but in all of our cleverness not very wise some of the faults of Odysseus can be seen in this contradiction, clever but not wise. It's pretty clever when he said, nobody, my name is nobody. Many of you laughed at the story. But his pride and his hubris when he's leaving, he stands on his ship laughing at the giant who believes his name is nobody, and he says, Odysseus has triumphed. Odysseus, not even the gods can stop. The problem is the Cyclops had a daddy named Poseidon and now we knew his name. This is this generation, friends, clever beyond measure and so full of pride that we are not very wise. I think my favorite story about Odysseus has to be sailing past the land of the sirens. Does anybody know what the sirens are? Oh man, the sirens. The sirens in ancient Greek literature would sing such a beautiful song that it captivated all who heard it. The funny thing is, all men heard a different song. In every song, every man heard the sirens singing of them as heroes. Oh, how the church loves the song of the sirens. We're the heroes of all of our own stories. Odysseus has to sail past the land of the sirens. And the problem is, as you heard their songs, your life inevitably crashed upon the rocks that surrounded their islands. It was a wonderful defense mechanism. Men were intoxicated by their own greatness. And if you sang to them about what a champion they are, Nobody would notice when their lives crashed on the rocks. Oh, you can travel down 59 today and hear the song of the sirens. There's a clip that I thought might help us with this. As the myth continues, Odysseus leaves Hades and sets sail for Ithaca. He is finally on his way home again, but in his path lurks another obstacle. The Island of the Sirens. The Sirens are these creatures whose songs are so beautiful that they pull you off course and you shipwreck. Odysseus knows he is approaching the Island of the Sirens. So he orders his men to plug their ears with beeswax to prevent them from hearing the siren's song. But Odysseus, a man of insatiable curiosity, is the exception to his own rule. He has the crew tie him to the ship's mast. This way he can listen to the sirens without steering the ship toward the island's rocky shores. As they row through, he's screaming untie me, untie me, but they can't hear him. And so he hears what the siren song is. Saints, when you see Odysseus tying himself to a mast so that he can hear the sound of the sirens, but his life won't be dashed upon the rocks, he was in agony. The very ropes that he bound himself with to the mast began to burn his skin as his heart and his mind pulled away from the mast he himself was adhered to. He began to yearn for the very thing that he had tried to prevent himself from doing. This is such a great picture. When we see a man raised on a mast, you might think of the cross. In Greek literature, the Greek world is portrayed this over and over and over. For them, the exaltation of a man, a man lifted up as a man who quests for knowledge. Of course, we see something different in the story. We see what his quest and his curiosity for knowledge brought him. There's a knowledge of a tree of good and evil. And if we had not eaten from it, we would not be so tortured. If we were not eating from it now, we would not be so tortured. Many Christians have not tied themselves to the mast of their ship. They've tied themselves to Christ and amen. Tied to the cross of Christ. But they never put the beeswax in their ears. And they're still listening to the sound of the world. And it pulls at them. And their life is always on the edge of crashing on the rocks. Their life may actually be on the rocks. In just little pieces of the mast. Tied to their backs. Reminders of the Christian life that they once professed. Tied to Christ and resenting every minute of it. They say things like, if I weren't saved, I would. Oh, you've tied yourself to Jesus. You know, this is not Christianity. Christianity is not a rope-burned, rope-bound Christian. Neither is it men who in ignorance just go about life with beeswax in their ears. The question in Greek literature is, would you rather be the ignorant oarsman or the enlightened Odysseus? The answer in the Bible is a great big neither. I want a new soul. I don't want the siren song at all. I can look and see what happens to those who hear the siren song, those who are longing for the world, regardless of what they tied themselves to. I know what happens to them. In the end, there is destruction. and I don't want it. I want a new song in my heart. I don't want to just not hear the world. Praise God for those men who locked themselves away in monastery. They've covered their lives in beeswax. But neither do I want to just tie myself to a cross while I'm in love with the world. Hearing the sound that says you're a hero. You're a champion. It's like Friday, you know in love with stories of my valor and my heroics. And in reality, the only marks on my body were the ones that were in friction with the word of God. Oh, tell me, church, is it not an apropos analogy? It is, isn't it? You want to see this in full bloom? Studied Christian dating. (laughs) You'll see it. In full bloom. Let's get just close enough to feel such a a drawing that we're intoxicated by the siren song and try to tie ourselves to the cross so that we don't go to hell over it. How much slack can we get in these ropes? And you ask your pastor stupid questions like how much touching is okay? Christians in love with the sound of the sirens. When we were supposed to be in love with the word of God. Can I surprise you in church? I worked with men and every day they look forward to something. I mean, every day. It didn't matter how hard the work was or how easy it was. If we got rained out after three hours, then their most anticipated event, George, came three hours earlier. Say, man, what are you doing when you get off work? Do you know what I'm doing? I'm getting a 40. Everybody in my job site getting a 40. I had to go learn what a 40 was, right? (laughs) I did. I didn't know beer came in such big... And not always beer. Sometimes I have them amazed what there's 40 ounces of. You can buy wine in a tin can. (laughs) Look, y'all act like you don't know what I'm talking about. Just because you wrap it in a paper sack don't mean we don't know what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, somebody say, getting a 40. 40. Now you good church people upset with me, turn to Psalm 40. (laughs) Well, they get their 40, I'm going to get my 40. I want a great big drink of Jesus. I want to get intoxicated with his song. I want to drown my sorrows in his word. I'm getting a 40. Psalm 40 and verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud in the mire. He set my feet on a rock. <laughs> he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to the proud to those who turn aside to false gods. Oh, saints, when you get your 40, when you really look forward to getting into the 40th Psalm, the first thing you find is that the Word of God will lift you out, not just tie you to. The word of God is not about finding higher moral ground in tying yourself to the moral ground. It's about lifting you out of mire and muck, not so that your heart can long for it and he traps you in his hand. Lifting you out because you knew you no longer wanted to live in it. You know what's wrong with tying yourself to the mast? It shows that your heart is still really with the siren song. Your feet are standing here, but your heart is over there. Oh, this is more so-called Christian lives than you would care to admit. My feet are standing here, but my heart is over there. And it's revealed as soon as we have a trial, as soon as the strong brother on your left or your right stops carrying you, and you're expected to walk a few feet on your own. Blame them the whole time that you're doing what you've been planning on doing your entire Christian walk. Your love affair with the world. If Jesus was Odysseus lifted up on the ship's mast, you were Penelope if she was unfaithful. In the story, Penelope wasn't. And in the story, there's such a a double standard that most women have trouble reading it. None of you women have read it. If you've read it, you know what I. Okay. In 1997, Armando Asante did a cheesy Hallmark movie where he's Odysseus. Those of you that just can't read, you can watch it. In the story, faithful Odysseus longs for Penelope. And he can't wait to get back there, but because he's so offended Poseidon, Poseidon will not let him get back there more than 10 years. And everywhere the man is shipwrecked, the only way out for him is to be unfaithful. And he is, but the Greeks don't see it as unfaithful when a man is unfaithful. (coughs) Of course, his wife has 108 men to choose from, all who for 10 years are pursuing her every day. And his one question when he gets back after 10 years is, is she faithful? That's a double standard if I ever saw one, isn't it? Now you're beginning to understand what the book of Hosea is about. We want a God who is completely faithful to us in every way, a beacon of purity, but we want him to accept us when the only way we've ever gotten ourselves out of any difficult situation is to be unfaithful to him and do it the way we wanted to do it. Of course, that never really gets you out of a difficult situation, does it? It prolongs the inevitable. You might even go... from the Straits of Scylla with a seven-headed beast trying to eat you right into the underworld. And from the underworld, you might go straight into an enchanted witch's fortress. And from the witch's fortress, you might then end up washed up on some Thracian shore. See, one reason that a Western civilization loves to read these stories is they're like the Psalms without the good ending. We see our own lives in them. We've all chosen a wrong path and had a seven-headed monster we didn't know was there eating us. The question is, how do you get out? And what religion has said is you tie yourself to the cross. I'm convinced that that's agony in more ways than you can count just to tie yourself to the cross while your heart is in love with the world. The way out is to have a transformed heart and mind so that you hug the cross. You're not tied to it. See, my view of salvation is not Calvinist. I don't believe that God has forced me to be saved. Some might say it's an Armenian view, but I never met an Armenian until a couple years ago and he didn't know what I was talking about. I chose Jesus because he chose me. I'm faithful to him because he's demonstrated faithfulness to me. I'm good to him because I can't be otherwise. He has so won my heart that my life is enraptured in him. The first thing that happens when you get your 40 is you're lifted out. The second thing that happens is he sets your feet on a rock he takes you out of the love of the world that puts you against the rocks and he sets you on the rock that is the foundation of his kingdom he lifted me out of the slimy pit out of the mud and the mire he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand where are you standing church Are you on the firm rock that is Christ? Are you simply tied to religious ideals, longing for the world? I think they put the back doors on many bars for my Baptist friends I grew up with. None of them drank unless no one was looking. Didn't they all did? None of them danced unless no one was looking. It's the spirit of religion. It says, look at me, I'm tied to the cross. I say, look closer. If you have rope burns on your life, you're not in love with the one who hung on the cross. You're simply tied to religious ideals. Look at verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. The song is very personal. He put a new song in my mouth. But it becomes a hymn when we sing it together to our God. Natalie wrote a song. It's her song. It's hers. She wrote it. God gave it to her. But when we sing it together, it's a hymn to our God. We're not a group of people who are simply tied to the mast of a ship, longing for the world. We're a group of people that have been lifted out of mud and mire, set in a new place to stand and so we have a song that the world needs to hear and it's my song it's not yours it's not somebody else's it's mine my own personal hell that i was delivered out of my own personal salvation but it becomes ours when we share it together and that's what fellowship is it's my song and he is Our God I like to hear your songs The world needs to hear your songs There's enough siren sound out there Now let's tell the truth you're driving down the road and you hear the sound of a siren good feeling or bad Good or bad good or bad good or bad. So you got to choose Everybody knows the sirens bad Unless it's somebody else's life that's crashing Somebody flies by you at twice your speed. You see the sirens and what do you do? You laugh because if they got you, if they got them, they're not going to get you, right? This is what the church is doing. We see that 50% of those who are in church are getting divorces, but it's not you today. So you see the sirens, but you don't heed the warnings. In love with the world, lives crashing everywhere. I believe that God puts a song in a man's heart when he's delivered. And if you don't have a song, you're not delivered. I believe that God sets a man's feet upon a rock and when he's on the rock, he knows it. Nobody has to tell him. I think that if there's a song in your mouth that you're singing a hymn to our God, everyone will know it. It's not a personal matter not a private decision. At least Odysseus let everyone see him go through what he went through. (coughs) Christians are doing it behind the click of a mouse every day. And maybe evangelical pastors at the top of the list. The Roman church keeps getting caught in newspaper tabloid headlines and they have for hundreds of years. They're notorious for it. It's world-renowned. You can't hide from it. The church is synonymous, what they call the church anyway, with impurities of every kind. But the dirty secret of the evangelical world is that the things those men are getting caught for, so many in the evangelical Protestant world are viewing on their computers. That's what happens when you tie yourself to the cross rather than love it, choose it, hug it, live in it. That's what happens. You say you were raised in a Christian home. I say you were probably just tied to a cross. You say, I've been a Christian since I was a small boy. Yeah, it shows. You were probably just tied to a cross. I believe salvation is more than being tied to a cross. Could you put Colossians 3, 2 on the screen? It's not in the notes. I believe that when you are born again, You set your mind on things above. That it's a very conscious choice and that you have a choice every day. You set it like you set a radio station. You set it because it's your heart's desire to do it. And to set your mind on things above means they are not on earthly things. It is a siren song, a lie of the modern church that you can have both. Some have chosen to deal with their problem by putting beeswax in their ears and hiding in little conclaves of cowards. Others have tried to deal with the problem by tying themselves to a profession of faith that is not their heart's expression. They're the words of some other man in some other place at some other time. I'm saying that the answer comes in the man who has been delivered from mud and muck. He has had his own feet set in a new place and because of it, he has a song that is his and his alone that he's sharing with the rest of the world. He's chosen to set his mind on the things above. And if it's on the things above, it's not on earthly things. Where is your mind this morning? Where is your heart this morning? Would you be more excited if you got a Ford Raptor than if you knew you were saved? Well, of course, I've been saved my whole life. Or maybe you've just been tied to something your whole life. See, this is the problem with growing up in a post-Christian America. Everybody believes there's something that there is absolutely no evidence of in their life. And they're desperately offended with you. When you simply show them what the Bible has said for thousands of years about them. call you narrow-minded and mean-spirited. And they go with the siren sounds to the largest steeple in the area. Guys, God is raising up a faithful remnant. He is. And there are little churches everywhere that are singing their own song. They're not cookie-cutter Christians. They're not franchised faith. They're not stamped out of some mold of success somewhere turned out with USDA stamped Christians attested to by their great numbers. There are men and women that have an actual song that God gave them and them alone and they've joined together with others that have the song. It's a revelation from the heavens that has so enraptured their heart that they don't even notice the sirens are playing anymore. One of the saddest things I've ever seen. It's an old missionary. Who's given the last 30 years of his life to the Lord. And somewhere along the way, he noticed enough Siren song. That he's begun to resent the ropes. I hope that's not too deep for you. He can't do anything else because this is all he's done in his entire adult life. But the passion is gone. The song is old. And it's more about raising money than it is saving souls. Oh, man. Nothing quite muddies the water like a righteous man who gives way to the wicked. Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-six says, like a muddied spring or a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked. The whole world gets confused when that which is supposed to be fresh, clear, drinking water is actually muddy and unclear and foggy. One of the reasons that so many are listening to the sound of the siren songs is there are so many out there that are living muddy, confused lives that they simply believe this is what is normal. James 1.25 says so clearly, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. What does the perfect law give? Freedom, not rope burns, not restriction. Freedom to do what your new heart wants to do. Freedom to do what the new spirit in you is telling you to do. Freedom to do what your love and your passion and your direction says you can now do. Not restriction, freedom. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. When Odysseus was being written about in the Odyssey by Homer in the year 800, and he was writing about 400 years earlier in the the time of 1200, the world was polluted. The island of Calypso was like Las Vegas. The siren sounds were everywhere. It was pollution so that a man could set his heart on going home and be pulled into the rocks. In James' day, in the first century, the world was polluted. A believer in Corinth could be on his way home and there would be objects of worship all around him. They were also objects of sexual perversity. Do you think the world is becoming less polluted or more polluted? If he talked about keeping oneself from being polluted by the world in the first century, how much more important is it to not be polluted now? Oh, church, can you hang in there with me just a little while? The rope burns aren't going to help us, though. You can't keep yourself from being polluted by binding yourself to something that is not your heart. Anybody in here try to diet? (laughs) Say, no, no, my diet has worked. If your diet has worked, it's because it's become your lifestyle and you love it. It's not a diet. Among us, there are a handful that that's true for. You had an awakening and decided that something like red meat for you was not a good choice. And you love what you do. And it's changed forever because it's not temporary. You're not looking forward to your cheat day. See, but Christians have been looking forward to their cheat day their entire walk. In the area of the world I come from, they call it Fat Tuesday. It is. It's tiresome. It's sickening. And it's prevalent. You want to keep yourself from being polluted. You look into the law that gives you freedom to do what God has said for you to do. And then you enjoy doing it. Yeah. So one of the barstool prophets that's related to me that I picked up the other day. I drug him out of his fellowship and brought him to my home. He's known me for 38 years. And when I walked through the door, he didn't recognize me. said, you are coming home with me. Oh, I'll be there in a little while. You will or I'll be back. We have dinner for you. Come home. figure once a year is not too much to ask, right? He says to me, I really wish that I enjoyed doing all of those things you do. Like you've got it in your heart to do that stuff. The thing is, is, I don't like it. Well, of course you don't. You've spent your life letting this world conform you to its image. And I have spent my life being transformed by the pure, driven Word of God. I want you to understand tabula rasa, blank slate theory is not true. Your heart is not a blank slate, it is corrupted and wicked and desires every evil thing, and your only hope for cure is to reshape it by the Word of God. And as you reshape it by the Word of God, what you love changes. It changes. There's a time period where if we had talked about spending 41% of all the money that we had access to in Africa in Asia, in South America, in Eastern Europe. I would have laughed in your face. But then the word of God began to reshape my heart and his priorities became my priorities. His word revived my soul. It put light in my eyes. It put joy in my life and he'll do the same for you. I want to read you something from 2 Peter, and then we're going to begin to wind this down. 2 Peter 2, 19. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. A man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. You cannot be a slave to the siren song and a slave to the cross of Christ. Whatever has mastered you is where your loyalty lies. This is why Jesus said, If you love me, you will obey my commands. Do you love him? Do you know him? Are you passionate about him? Or is... He's simply a pacification of your conscience. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and... What's that word? See, you think that you can hear the siren song and it will have no effect, but it's actually wrapping itself around you all of the time. And it is possible to become entangled and not just entangled, but overcome. Because your heart is fickle. Not just yours, mine. And every other human being that has ever lived. And your heart is going to love whatever feeds it. I have a wiener dog. Y'all know that. And my wiener dog is a wayward little soul. I can call him, but if you're holding a turkey leg, he will not come to me. He goes wherever it's good for him in that moment. And I try to encourage him through praise, but often what is most effective is a stick. I called him to come to my car the other day, and he decided that he wanted to Pee on the tire to Mario's car. Sorry, Mario. So I fetched a branch and I began working on a little dachshund. And he crossed a 100 yards at the near speed of light and jumped into my truck perfectly obedient. Am I lying, Judah? That's not a sign of obedience to his master. It's a sign that he's just scared of punishment. Saints, if God has to beat you to get you to obey him, you don't love him. You might be scared of him, and there's some wisdom in that. It's where wisdom starts. But you don't love him. Many times he's been lighting your fields on fire your entire life, and you can smell it burning, but are convinced it's everyone else's fault. Because after all, you've been tied to the cross since you were eight. I've been a religious man my entire life. But you never loved the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength in a way that everybody around you knew it. And you've been to church so many times and sat through so many emotional appeals that you're fully prepared to sit through another one completely unchanged. Let me ask you, where is your heart this morning? Luke 16, 16 says the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Christianity is not some passive thing that you tie yourself to at the age of 8 or 12 or 15. And because you tied yourself to it back then, you're always tied to it. You never stray very far. You never do something deserving of hell. But the profession of faith is on my wall. Christianity is something that you force, you daily force yourself into. You daily exert force over your own ears, over your own heart, over your own eyes. And you say, In the name of Jesus, the Word of God is going to control my action. The word of God is going to shake my heart. The word of God is going to determine how I live, not just what I say, I believe. Church, when we wake up to this principle, no one will have to tell you how to act ever again. You won't struggle to recognize truth from error. When you're transformed by the renewing of your mind, instead of being conformed to the world, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Then you will know what his good, pleasing, and perfect will is for you. That's what happens. You show me men who are confused constantly about the direction of their life, and it's because you're listening to the wrong music. You're hearing the sound of the world and you're allured by it and you have never dialed in to the passionate love affair with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Have you heard that so many times that it's lost its meaning? Let me ask you, when did a change from old to new happen? If you can't nail down a month in your life where there was a transformation, then it probably never happened. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Not might come, not will one day come. If you're in Christ, What is old, the mire, and the muck is gone, and what is new has come. You are standing on a rock with a new song in your heart. This is the litmus test for a Christian. Are you standing on the bedrock of his revelation personally in your life, singing that song with the community of believers? Are you simply acknowledging the song someone else is singing is probably true? You have time for two scriptures? Yes. Yes. Psalm 119 is worth turning to. Psalm 119, tell me when you get to verse 97. I know, I'm one of those preachers who makes his point and then preaches entirely too long. There, there. See, the thing is, some of you may never come back. And I don't want you to have a truncated gospel. I don't want you to confuse us with the siren songs. In Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. Do you see the explanation point there? Oh, how I love your law. Explanation point. You know, there is no punctuation like that in Hebrew. It's just that the way that it's written, you can tell. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. You know, when somebody wants something and your houses are going to be full of people who want things here in these next few weeks. I want a, a Daisy Red Ryder BB gun with a compass in the stock, you know. I want some it's all you can think about. It occupies your heart, your soul, your mind. Whatever the latest Xbox creation is, Little kids all over will be... I said little kids, and I see men's heads dipping around the room. (laughs) Wow. 27-year-old boy children (laughs) will be yearning for the latest graphics processor, for the latest new throwback transformer. I don't know flux capacitor because it's what their heart desires David longed for the Lord's word like that so even a man recording his words puts an explanation point on oh how I love your law I meditate on it all day long your commands make me wiser than my enemies for they are ever with me I have more insight than all of my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. What will make you wise for salvation? I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. Let's, let's turn that around. Disobedience makes you dumb. Proverbs 12:1 says, "He who hates correction is stupid. Turns out the word of God's pretty enlightening, isn't it? I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. Did you know that God would teach you? Listen to what he says. How sweet are your words to my taste? Sweeter than honey to my mouth. How would you describe God's Bible? Anybody like ice cream? I thought I'd get more amens than that. Anybody like ice cream? Yeah. I mean, like, what's your favorite? I got a little blonde-headed rascal in my home that can eat Dutch chocolate uh, Blue Bell ice cream like... Oh, man, see, me, it's, it's mint chocolate chip. And the only thing that makes something better than mint chocolate chip is if, like, you put it on a stick and wrap it in chocolate. As a kid, I remember going with a grandfather to get cherry jubilee ice cream. Thought it was the most special thing on the planet. When you love something, it's sweet in your mouth. You long for the opportunity. You might even skip a meal just to have two desserts. How do you view the word of God? Because it's telling about how you view the Savior. Because he is the word of God. Is he a restraint in your life that keeps you from doing what you want to do? Or is he the power in your life to do what you want to do? And what you want to do was defined by the word of God. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Do you hate the wrong path? Or do you love it and resent Christianity for keeping you from doing it? How many of you know who Paul Washer is? How many of you like what Paul Washer preaches? See, I do too. But this is essentially what he's telling people. You can't have Britney Spears on Friday night and Jesus Christ on Sunday morning. And they applaud for him. And he says, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Dead silence. And so he's got a following, mostly on the Internet. Isn't that strange? See, we're the churches that everybody loves to peek in on, but nobody wants to be publicly associated with. It's okay. That's exactly what Messiah's like. Everyone wants to peek in on him, but nobody wants to be publicly associated with him because it reveals rope burns. Are you sold out for the Savior? Because his word is a lamp to my feet. His word is a light to my path. 2 Timothy 3.14 is our last scripture. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. This implies that the men who teach you the word live in a way that is in agreement with the word. It implies that you know them. It implies that what a man preaches from a pulpit he is in the privacy of his home. But you would have to know him to know that. You might have to eat a Thanksgiving dinner with him. You might have to spend a Monday night in his house. But men who are simply tied to the mast, singing the siren song, they only want you to see that on the days you view them, their feet are tied to the mast. You're going to get what you want, saints. You will. And if what you want is men who sing beautifully, and live poorly well that's how you build an american church now but if what you really want are not the treasures and the riches of this world but you want the very heart of god and you want to be free to do his will if that's what you want oh some of us are beginning to sing that song as loud as we can sing it we don't just sing it in the shower We don't just sing it in the privacy of our homes. We sing it everywhere we go. And everybody in the town that we live in knows our song because we're shouting it from the rooftops. And we're inviting you to sing it with us. No two songs are exactly alike. And yet they're all to the same God. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able. Say that. Are able. You've known the holy scriptures from infancy which are able to make you wise for salvation. Knowing them from infancy does not guarantee salvation. Knowing them from infancy may just be tying you to the cross. Look at your wrists, look at your feet, look at your hearts, are there rope burns on them? Or have the scriptures made you wise for salvation? Is that your delight to trust in Jesus? Are you Part of the group that says all Scripture is God-breathed, not just to somebody else, but into my heart. It's useful for teaching not everyone else but me. For rebuking not everyone else but rebuking me. Correcting. Oh, here's the big one. And training in righteousness. Is the Word of God a restraint to you? Or is it the very thing that teaches you how to do what your heart desires to do? How do I witness? How do I be a missionary? How do I build the kingdom of God? How do I advance the cause of God? How do I work for you, Lord? Those answers are found in His Word. And His Word frees you to do it. That is entirely different in being familiar with the things of God, so that you can no longer go as far in sin as everyone else does. You just go an acceptable amount, looking for enough loophole in your rope to not really, but maybe kind of sort of steer in that direction. Oh man. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will. Correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What are you supposed to be, saints? The best-selling book of all time, 71 million of them in 1997 alone, teaches how to equip you for every good work work, not to tie you to a cross to keep you from sinning while your heart yearns for the world. It is to train you to work for God. Well, maybe, maybe that'll help us decide where we stand. If what the word of God that you love does is train you to do God's work, when you look back at the years of your life, how much of God's work is getting done? in your life. See, I had such bad rope burns. I was so bound up in religion and claiming that I was saved that I was absolutely shocked by a verse that I heard all of the time. said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom. But only he who hears the clincher does the will of my Father will enter the heavens. So I knew that I could quote John 3.16. I knew that I was being raised in a Christian home and I was going to a Christian school, dating a Christian girl from a Christian family. I knew all of those things. And in the end, they were just ropes because I was not doing the will of him who sent me. I wasn't. What does your life testify about you? You're either doing God's will or you're not. And if you're not doing His will, the Bible cure for that is repent. If you are doing His will, then you rejoice and sing your song louder. But you know how truthfully you answer that question may actually determine what God thinks about you. How crucial is that then? To be right When you rejoice or repent, how imperative is it that we get that right? If you're singing your song, doing his work, you should be rejoicing, leaping, spinning, jumping for joy. Larry prophesied about it this morning through the Psalms. If when you look at your life today, no honest measure says, I am Presently doing the will of God Doing the will of God Then there is only one biblical answer for that And it's repent And if you choose to rejoice when you should be repenting You will be in for a giant surprise When our king returns from his journey And finds you unfaithful Those of us who are rejoicing, we're also repenting every day. You can repent and rejoice, you just can't rejoice without repenting. Please stand to your feet. So, the Bible could just be a system of rules for us. It could just be limits to our madness. Or it could become the very passion for our existence. Those of you raised in a Christian home, I'm trying so hard to reach you. Those of you that had ten years that were good in the Christian walk but hadn't had ten since then, I'm trying so hard to reach you. I almost never meet people in this country that say I'm not living a Christian life. Almost never. And when they do, they want me to know they're saved, but they're not living a Christian life. That's all siren sounds, friends. It's not even possible. To be a Christian is to live a Christian life. Like trying to be a pineapple while living as a banana. Doesn't work. What do you need to do? I want you to consider this last thing. I know I've got you on your feet. Consider this. Not only did God give me this word for you, he put the pretext for it in Homer's heart in 800 B.C. And if that wasn't enough, a young woman from our congregation, he gave a song to two weeks ago, and she kept it a secret till this morning and it's about a new song and what your heart and mouth are saying in agreement. How hard is God trying to reach you? It didn't cost you anything to be here this morning, nothing. It could cost you everything to walk out of here having heard what you just heard and be unmoved by.